Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 222 of the Independent Advisors Podcast for Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So it's very, very good to have you back, my friend. Nice to be back. We're in the deuce, deuce, deuce episode. I'm happy. We are. Yeah. Two, two, two. Better than three, 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 right? Yes. <laughs> so as always, we will quickly review the month to date and year to date performance of the major market indices that we track. This data is from Y charts and as of the market close on October 6th, S&P 500 index is positive by a half percent for the month and up 12% for the year. The Dow Jones industrial average down 0.3% for the month and up 0.8% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 1.6% for the month and up 28.3% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index down 2% for the month and down 0.8% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 0.6% for the month and up 2.8% for the year. Three month Treasury rate at 5.63%. Two-year Treasury rate, 5.08%, and the 10-year Treasury rate at 4.78%. So uh, really two things in terms of big headlines, current events, Matt. Uh, Obviously, on Friday, uh, we had a pretty strong jobs report. Um, So the U.S. added 336,000 jobs in September compared to economist estimates of 170,000. So what we saw was that the market initially sold off uh, pre-market, um, pre-9, 9.30 a.m., but then once the market actually opened, it rallied into the close the end of the day. So, Great reversal day into a weekend. That was impressive because the normal adage is strong economic data tends to be negative for the market because everyone's worried about the Fed, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I think this is important because people would think if employment stays hot, and I know this sounds crazy and we've talked about this before. Go ahead. If employment stays hot, it's gonna influence the Fed to keep raising rates because they don't want the economy to overheat, right? Because Mm -hmm. the economy overheats, there's a bigger risk of a hard landing, right? Um, Where there's a very precipitous decline in investable assets, the economy weekends a lot quicker and they're trying to slow the pace of that, right? but because the market rallied in the face of a report that should be negative for stocks, that's positive in my opinion. I think it's very positive. And I know every you know short-term bottom isn't like the one that preceded it, but we saw something very similar back in October of 2022 mm-hmm. when CPI came out and it was the highest it's ever been or highest it's been in the past decade or the past two decades. We saw the same thing. Market dropped pre-market, and then when the market opened, rallied throughout the day. And I think it was like October 13th last year. That marked the bottom. Bottom, yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me if we're in a similar type of environment. Um, You know, obviously, there was more news over the weekend about what's going on uh, overseas, which is horrible. Um, But the thing that I wanted to bring up 
with people because I think they're going to have questions about it is, you know, how is this conflict with Hamas and uh, going to affect the markets, right? Because I think one would uh, venture to believe that if they're just re reading the news headlines, that this is probably going to be negative for their portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this is purely from a portfolio standpoint. There was a tweet uh, on Saturday, uh, the eight, or excuse me, Sunday the 9th, Sunday the 8th by Mike Zaccardi, um, that he talked about how the market usually takes these geopolitical events in stride. Now, sometimes it takes a couple days or a couple weeks sure. for, to work its way through the system. Sure. Um, but he had a couple different graphics, but the one that I want uh, for Jenna to put up on the YouTube page is one that shows uh, the event that happened in the left-hand column, the start date of the event, and then the gain or loss for the S&P 500, one week, one month, three month, six months, and one year out. Yes. So um, obviously the latest, uh, the latest one prior to what happened this weekend was Russia invading Ukraine. And for example, the market was up one week after that. Uh, the one month gain in the S&P was 1%. Six months after that, gain was 8.3%. One year after the invasion, 14.7%. Uh, so yeah. uh, it's not necessarily all bad for the market when these type of things happen. Um, this could be very different. I don't, I don't know what the, the pre-markets are doing right now, but the market's open in about five minutes, and we'll have an update for people on what's going on. But um, obviously, the humanitarian aspect of this is just horrible, but... Um, it's not necessarily something again where we you want be changing to be your plan per se, making changes based off of right because um, as you can see here in this graph, Matt, six months later the market's positive seventy percent of the time, uh, going back to the nineteen forties when we have big geopolitical events like this happen. So I don't think this is the time to hit the panic button. Um, and it, it's kind of a wait and see. Uh, I think oil prices are, are spiking higher this morning. Um, so energy could come back into vogue over the next couple of weeks or next couple of months. But we don't know if that's going to be a short term development or if that's something that's going to persist over the next six, 10, 12 months. Yeah, it's funny. I heard people debating on Bloomberg this morning about oil and how initially when these conflicts happen, oil spikes and then they figure out it doesn't have it, assuming it doesn't get too out of control and other countries don't get pulled in. It, it tends to be a you know, a couple day event when they were, and I'm paraphrasing what I heard this morning. Right. For yeah. Experts in that area. Last thing I got is, and this is going to be an important podcast, I think for people to listen to, given how weak August and September were, which we've talked about the seasonality aspect. I had so much content to pick through and I only picked three things to discuss today. And these three things I'm going to discuss in a little bit, I think are very important that talk about where the market's at and where I think it's going. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, first thing I had, Matt, was a tweet from uh, Willie Delwich, uh, CMT CFA. This was back on October the 5th. And he tweeted, early October and Dow Industrials S&P 500 equal weight, small caps and value mm. line geometric index. This is a good point. Are all down year to date. This I think I sent, point. sent you this mm -hmm. uh, a week or so ago, Matt. Yep, yep. He says the S&P 500 is the outliner or the outlier. Heck of a bull market that we're having. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is 30, uh, 30 stocks, uh, all price weighted, right? Mm -hmm. um, the S&P 500 equal weighted. So it takes all the names in the S&P 500 and instead of market weighting them, 
i.e. based on how big the company is, mm -hmm. it weights all of the 500 companies or five, I think it's 506 companies the same, yep. right? Uh, small caps, obviously risk on areas of the market and the value line geometric index, which a lot of people refer to as the average stock in the market, right? Okay. Those are all down year to date. So Negative. he is right here. The S&P 500, because it's market cap weighted, is the outlier. And there's more stocks doing poorly than doing well right now. And a lot of people might argue that that's not characteristic of a bull market, and it's not. Um, so I think these things are going to have to turn it around pretty quickly uh, to start pick up the pace because, again, we can't have 20 names pushing this market higher for an extended period of time. And this is exactly why I think earnings season coming up here over the next several weeks is so important for Q4 performance. I think it's going to bring the focus back to the fundamentals. And there's been so many times over the past decade where earnings season has brought people back into focus about how profitable, I'm not saying every company, but a lot of companies are. And remember, these C-suites, they are motivated to get these stock prices up. Yeah, absolutely. So just don't, uh, don't underweight, you know, listeners and viewers, how important earnings season is going to be coming up here. Yeah, and I think big banks uh, are scheduled to report on Friday, I think. Yep. Um, second thing I had was a tweet from Scott Brown, uh, CMT. This was back on... October 3rd, uh, he said, hope for Q4, question mark. The S&P 500 is nine of nine with this setup coming into the fourth quarter. If the S&P 500 is up at least 10% through July, but down in August and September, Q4 has never been lower, with the average return uh, being 9.46%, it looks like. So um, again, this has only happened a handful of times. It looks like roughly, not, well, yeah, nine times. Um, Q4 has never been lower, so um, take what you want from it, but similar setups to what we've seen coming into the fourth quarter have usually, usually been pretty good for the market. And again, that's on a technical basis, on a charting basis, which I think right now people are putting, there's a lot of eyes on the technicals, yeah. a lot of eyes on the charts. Yeah, there are. Last but not least, Matt, was a tweet from Bar Chart on October 3rd. They said that 93% of the S&P 500 stocks are now trading below their 50-day moving average, which is one of the highest levels in the last six years, and has typically coincided with the S&P 500 forming a bottom and heading higher. Uh, again, for new listeners, the 50-day moving average just takes prices for uh, the stock that you're following uh, over the last 50 days, average it out, and is the current price trading above or below that, right? Yep. Um, so we call this kind of like a washout in breadth, right? Okay. So, you know, people use moving averages to define uptrends and downtrends. The 50-day moving average is more of an intermediate-term trend, 200-day moving average, more of a long-term trend. Mm -hmm. um, but we, when we tend to see this many stocks trading below their 50-day moving averages, at least on a short-term basis, we tend to see some relief for the market. So again, combine that with the seasonal period that we're in, combine that with where we are in the pre-election year cycle, um, combine that with earnings season coming up, um, we might get a little bit of a relief bounce. I don't know how long that's gonna last, but yep. um, at least maybe this week uh, or next week, things might be turning up. Again, yeah, yeah, a, lot, a lot of earnings headlines too, right? So adding on top of this, is just a lot of this data that I'm seeing that is pointing to a potential bottom here in the market. 
So the first is this piece was posted by Seth Golden, and Seth posted this just a couple days ago. Um, it was actually yesterday, October 8th. And what he was talking about is the, um, the options market. He was talking about calls and puts. And not to get too deep into the weeds for some of our listeners, what was happening is, is the indicator was um, hitting a point where put buying or individuals that were hedging for further downside or outright trying to buy that type of investment that makes money when a price goes down was hitting a very extreme and rare level. So what Seth did is he put some data behind this from Fundstrat, and we will have uh, Jenna put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. It'll be in our show notes on all of our social media sites. It shows all the instances, there were 20 instances, how extreme the put buying has been just lately. There's been 20 instances marked since 95. And do you wanna guess what the forward-looking returns are for the market when it gets that extreme? Probably pretty good. They're actually pretty good. So six months out on average in those 20 instances, and you can see the data set, 8% on average, one year later, average is 18.4%. So what I'm getting at is, is that when you tend to see people buy quote unquote protection in this type of mass, it tends to be something that I perk up to, and it tends to be a kind of a switch in the markets. So in essence, once everyone's kind of hedged and everyone's kind of out of their positions or they're comfortable, it tends to be a point where you tend to see some major turns in the market. Yeah, and again, a put, you know, gives the whoever's buying the put gives them the right to sell the underlying security to somebody else by a certain point in time, right? So yeah. if we take a put on the S&P 500 at the $4,000 level, right? Mm -hmm. So if the S&P 500 is below 4,000, that person can sell the S&P to somebody else at 4 at 4, buy it back at lower than four and make that spread, right? right? So, you know, put buying is people buying protection. And typically when there's a lot of this happening, it's usually a pretty good contrarian indicator. Perfectly said. So my next piece is a check-in on the pre-election year seasonality. I think you're gonna eat this up, buddy. You ready for this? I am. So this is from Oppenheimer on September 30th. And what it's doing is it's overlaying, Mark, the last 10 pre-election years. So from 1983 to 2019, that's gonna be in the gray, and in the blue is overlaying the S&P 500 so far this year in 2023. Jen will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers, of course it's in our show notes. I'll let you interpret this, calendar, this, uh, this chart, sir. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a pretty average pre-election year, right? It, does with, it not? With strength coming in the first half of the year and then a little weakness bit of weakness in the late and, summer. and pulling off. But, you know, to me, this chart is not even only average of a pre-election year, but this is just what the market does, right? It's two steps forward, one step back, two yep. steps forward, one step back. And it looks like based on this chart that we're finishing out this process of this one step back before we rally higher into, into year end. And Again, it's no secret that all of this stuff that we're talking about is lining up with seasonality and, you know, the Santa Claus rally coming That's up right. towards the end of the year. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, bearishness picks up. I just think that violent move to the upside is going to be that much more quick. 
So I got my last point. Just again, I had to be very selective here. Um, this is a piece that is from a trader I follow on, on social media. Um, this gentleman's name is Tom and his, um, his research that he has uh, called this is lines on a chart. And the piece I've titled this is it time to consider embracing fear. And so uh, this is a post by this gentleman just uh, over the weekend. And here's what he said, and I'm about to quote, ready? S&P 500 thoughts, time to consider embracing fear. While I speculate a little more decline towards 3950 to 4100 on the S&P before the correction bottom is in, it is certainly a time to actively be thinking about buying fear. The chart of the S&P 500 marks relative lows for both the CNN Fear and Greed Index, as well as the NAAIM Exposure Index. Uh, and that second index is an a, a exposure index of active money managers as to how much equity exposure they have, Mark. The combination of sentiment and exposure has proven helpful in pinpointing market inflection points. So what you're going to see is, I'll have Jenna put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes. This chart's going to go back about a couple of years. And you know what you're going to find? When this stock exposure index on the second is at a low point, as well as extreme numbers of extreme fear on the CNN fear and greed index, do you want to guess what happened? Mark the bottom in all these instances. And so could these numbers be wrong this time and the market moves lower? That is definitely a possibility, okay? But this is just another one of those pieces of data points that is telling me that we're in an extreme position right now from pessimism and the contrarian side of me and my years of experience is telling me you definitely want to perk up to this data. Yeah. That's the point I want to make. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, anything else before we go to our financial planning topic of the week, Mark? I had one interesting thing I want to throw out. Please. I had a client reach out over the weekend uh, who has been um, concerned about the markets uh, for some time. And uh, the client said to me, hey, I ran into this guy who just told me about dividend paying stocks and how that might be, you know, you know, my silver bullet uh, to get my equity exposure. And, and um, you know, my reply was, and I sent him a chart um, of the S&P 500 Dividend Aristocrats Index. And uh, what do you think has happened to that chart in the past two months? Nothing good, probably. Nothing good, buddy. So what I'm getting at is I want to throw that out there that you know, dividends are great, but if you have deterioration in the stock price, you're not going to stay in that position. Mm -mm. And so I just want to throw it out there that, you know, if you run across people and they're doing XYZ strategy and they talk highly about it, first of all, individual investors tend to only talk about their wins. Secondly, just because a certain strategy is working out good for one doesn't mean it's going to fit your risk tolerance and goals and objectives. I just want to kind of throw some wisdom out there. Yeah. And I think now's a time where <clears throat> people who are looking for dividend paying stocks may be a little disappointed with the returns over the next couple of years, especially if rates stay where they are, mm -hmm. because why would someone buy a dividend paying stock for income that's paying two and a half or 3% rather than just buying 
a six month U.S. Treasury for almost five and a half percent. Because the big reason is that company that's paying that dividend might be in a slower growth environment where they're not growing their underlying earnings, right? Correct. And so all of a sudden, you know, you start discounting that income stream where you can get, you know, a risk free, stable, you know, interest rate on a treasury bond. You, you know, and I think that the market is going to be focused on these fundamentals and these companies got to be growing their bottom line. Yeah. And I think, you know, the names that this person might be seeking are, you know, quote unquote, more stable, more conservative, lower volatility than the market. And one could look and say, OK, well, why don't we just run a screen for S&P 500 companies that have consistently increased their dividend every single year over the past 25 years? Their revenues are growing by five to 10 percent. Their earnings are growing by five to 10 percent. That's fine. But the dividend yield is going to be a lot less than someone would probably want bingo because there's not as much risk going into that bingo if you want a six seven eight nine percent dividend yield we can find those but a lot of those are going to be oil drillers or names that have the ability to cut their dividend regional banks this earning season where you know now the dividend yield is nine percent but in a couple of months it could be four percent no, that's exactly right. And you run that screen you just mentioned, it might come up with a name where the yield's like 1.1, right? Correct. And, you know, it's just, it's interesting. I just want to throw it out there that, you know, this is a market where there's no silver bullets and you've got to be diversified and you've got to be investing for your risk tolerance, your goals and objectives. Correct. Right? Time's on your side as an investor. People aren't putting money into equities thinking, I'm going to get this out in three to six months. If you are, that's aggressive, mm -hmm. right? So if you have a proper time horizon, that time is your advantage in the market. Yeah, for sure. All right, we're going to transition over to uh, Taylor for the financial planning topic of the week. Mark, I'll let you go, let you get back to the markets. Yep. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Good to be back Great with you. Great to be back, buddy. All right, so next up is Taylor Ledbetter. She is a wealth advisor with our firm, Joseph Wealth Management. She's a rock star. And she's on the podcast uh, quite often with her financial planning topic of the week. Uh, and we will see what she has on deck this time. Welcome, Taylor. Yeah. So today I'm going to be talking about trends just across different generations. Okay. Obviously financial trends. Okay. And I'm going to be referencing an article and it was called From Gen Z to Baby Boomers. Here's how each generation is saving for retirement. I think it's going to be a good one. Yeah, I'm you'll have to let me know if you kind of witness these trends, sure. if you think they're true, not true. I'm excited. So all this data comes from an organization called Trans America Center for Retirement Studies. Okay. They focus on educating the public about different retirement issues. So they surveyed 5,725 American workers age 18 and over and found that 41% of workers think future retirees will be worse off than current retirees. Okay. All right. All right. So we're going to start with Gen Z, and these are the people born between 1997 and 2012. All right. So the median age they start saving for retirement is 19. All right. A majority, 66%, of this generation have already started saving through an employer-sponsored plan like love a- Love this stat. Yeah, I would agree with that stat love too. Love that stat. 
The medial contribution rate is 20% of their annual pay. Love that stat. <laughs> and the median retirement account balance is around $29,000, but the median emergency saving balance is around 1000 Yes. I, I, I see this stuff in actual practice. I know you, could, you agree. I agree 100%. Yeah, we see this in practice, don't mm -hmm. we? 57% um, say they have trouble making ends meet financially, and then 28% have taken a hardship withdrawal from the retirement plan. I'd argue, too, that 57% having trouble making men ends meet, but there's a high correlation of student debt with that. I would agree with that. There's a high correlation with that. And I do think, at least from my experience, regarding the hardship withdrawals, I think I personally get more questions on that from younger people, but maybe yep. that's because their emergency savings are so low. <laughs> yeah, and one thing that I've, I've done, and I know you do this as well, uh, Taylor, but for our listeners and viewers, anytime an individual's talking about kind of taking a loan or a hardship, I make it relational as to when they can retire. And mm -hmm. I talk about missing out on the growth and compounding effect of that money, whether it's a loan, they pay it back, or a straight off withdrawal. What you're doing is you're looking at, okay, I could have retired at 62, but now that since I took that withdrawal, you're going to be retiring at 64 or 65. Mm -hmm. I'm giving an arbitrary example, but really, once you start making it relational to, that could equal a couple more years of your working life, which is not, a, not an inaccurate thing to say. Mm -hmm. I think it puts things into perspective because this generation they want to retire earlier than their parents. Mm -hmm. They really I, do. I agree. And I think even a couple years delay, that can be conservative. I mean, it all depends on how, how much, large. How but, old they are. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last stat about Gen Z is that 72% are in good physical health, while 71% are concerned about their mental health. I would agree with that, I too. I would agree. I would agree. You know, especially in this, in this age of, uh, of social media, we... We are inundated with information. You know, it's, it's, that's definitely, I think, a concern. Mm -hmm. um, the next generation is going to be millennials, and these are people born between 1981 and 1996. So this article said, because of a turbulent economy during the early working years, Millennials started out with greater student debt than their parents, which would explain why the median age they began saving for retirement is 25. 78% are saying they save through an employer plan or just some type of retirement plan, but they're only setting aside 12% of their annual salary. Okay. Their retirement accounts have a median balance of 49000 and their emergency, emergency savings have a median balance of 3500 Yep. So 48% say they have trouble making en ends meet, and 24% have taken a hardship withdrawal from their retirement plans. So a little similar to um, Gen Z that we just went over, but savings a little bit lower, emergency savings are a little bit higher. Um, and it says most millennials are caring for kids or aging parents. 40% are currently serving as caregivers for a relative and 69% are worried about their mental health. You know, it's interesting on the caregivers topic because I think this is going to be more and more, uh, the currencies are going to be more and more as the cost of living goes up 
uh, housing uh, affordability is is stretched relative to history. I just think you're going, you know, you saw this fad the last couple of decades of these dual income households mm -hmm. being the norm, not the exception. I think the next evolution of that is, hey, I don't want mom and dad to go into a home as long as we can get away with it. So if I can help them, you know, as long as I can in my house, they're going to move in with me. I'm seeing more and more of that. What about you? Yeah, no, I definitely see a lot of kids maybe helping out their parents. And it's interesting because, you know, a long, long time ago, the exception or the norm was a one-income household, then it moved to a two-income household, and now it's, well, they're taking care of their parents. Yes. So I'm even seeing this trend of, hey, we're going to get a different house. Mom and dad, they're going to sell their house and we're gonna renovate this one that we're buying so they can live the rest of their life with us or they have a, a little separate house on the property. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing more and more of these conversations mm -hmm. with clients. And so I don't think this trend's going away. I, I don't, it'll probably just get more, more normal, I guess. Exactly, good way mm -hmm. of saying it. All right, the next generation is gonna be Gen X and these are people born between 1965 and 1980. So the median age that Gen Xers started investing in retirement plans was around age 30. This is partially due to 401ks not being available until the 80s and the 90s. Yep. But now 81% participate in 401ks or a similar retirement plan. On average, they set aside about 10% of their salary for retirement. Their median account balances and their accounts are around 82,000 and they have a median emergency fund of around 5,000 and about 19% have taken a hardship withdrawal from their retirement plans. And kind of going through this, I didn't even think about how, you know, 401ks haven't always been around. Yeah. So it oh, yeah. completely makes sense while, why they started saving a little bit later. Yeah. I think it was the mid to late 80s they started coming around. Mm -hmm. Now, only 17% of Gen Xers are very confident that they'll be able to retire comfortably. 80% are worried that Social Security will not be there for them when they retire. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with that stat. 54% mm -hmm. um, plan to work in retirement. And then 40% expect to retire at age 70 or older, or just don't plan to retire. You know, it's interesting with these stats between uh, the Gen X here and the millennials. Um, for example, I'm in my young 40s. I am literally sandwiched mm -hmm. right between these two generations. Mm -hmm. And I believe that they technically call my three to uh, four year um, year that I was born, they call them Xennials. Interesting. Because we grew up analog, but we were young enough to embrace and learn digital. Mm -hmm. And I see aspects from both of these things. See, now, Jenna, I'm starting to date myself. <laughs> Not a good thing. But um, yeah, I think it's, these stats are really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, man, I just still think that more people are going to be caring for, for family as, as they age. I think it's going to be a greater thing. And my comment on Social Security is, if you pin me down, Taylor, and you said, where do you think Social Security is going to be 30 years from now? Mm -hmm. I would say it's going to be a needs-based calculation. Mm -hmm. They're going to look at, like, 
how they calculate what your premiums are for Medicare. Mm -hmm. They're going to look and say, okay, your income is so much, so you're going to get 60% of what you thought you were going to get or 70% or I think it'll be some sort of sliding scale on a percentage based upon your, your income. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see it going away completely. And I know I've talked about this before, how a lot of people are just very reliant on the social security today. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I don't see it going totally away, but I, in my personal opinion, if they were to adjust it, I think there needs to be some give maybe in other areas that that program would be taken away from like maybe contribution limits, things like that, because there's just a lot of regulations. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So the last generation is the baby boomers generation. And these people were born from 1946 to 1964. First of all, I love the baby boomers generation because you know why? Hmm. They've never changed. Mm-hmm. They're, I just, still my favorite generation. Yeah. I think you'll agree with these stats. I'm about okay. To go over. All right. I had to throw it out at the beginning. <laughs> love this generation. So baby boomers, they were mid-career when traditional pension plans and retirement landscape was changing. So the median age they started saving or planning for retirement wasn't until around 35. Now 85% participate in a employer-sponsored retirement plan. They save an average of 10% of their annual pay. Their retirement plans have an average balance of around 289000 and then 12% have taken hardship withdrawals, and then 41% expect to rely on Social Security as their primary source of retirement income, probably because the retirement planning came, you know, later in life, okay. which makes sense. Yep, it does. Um, 85% have a strong sense of purpose in life and 90% of boomers are generally half happy. See what you See just what said. I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the last stat was that 49% of the baby boomers expect to work past age 70 or are not planning to retire. The reasoning say, um, uh, 83% say it's financially related, while 77% say it's just healthy, aging related. You know, I think that last statistic is so spot on. And what I see boots on the ground is they're coming to me and saying, listen, I saw my parents retire, become stationary, then all the health problems came into play. Mm-hmm. So even if they don't necessarily need the money, they might volunteer. Um, they might work part-time for the socialization and the exercise aspect. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, I'm seeing more and more of this baby boomers phase. They, in my opinion, are going to be a lot more active. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a doctor, but I can, you can connect the dots. You know, if you're sedentary and you're sitting down constantly in, in retirement, that's going to cause probably a correlation to higher health issues. Oh, for sure. And this baby boomer generation is quickly picking up on that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's wonderful to see this generation a lot more active. I mean, you're probably mm-hmm. seeing that in, in your clients. Oh yeah, no, I definitely have seen it. And I think that also the older generation, you know, aside from it being good for you to just keep moving, mm-hmm. I think they just enjoy to work a little more than maybe the younger generation that we're seeing. Yes. So I think it's an enjoyable for them too. I would agree. Mm-hmm. I would agree. But yeah, I just thought all those stats were pretty interesting and I thought they were accurate for the most part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, um, 
Anything else on your financial planning topic of the week before I transition? Um, no, I don't think so. All right. Well, before we sign off, one thing I do want to promote is um, our podcast itself and how we distribute this information. So one of those is through an entity that we call Blueberry, and that is spelt B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. That is the, um, the entity, Taylor, you know this, and of course Jenna does, the entity we use to get our podcast out to all these different platforms, whether it's Apple or Amazon or Spotify, you know, go down the list of all of our platforms. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can get your first month of Blueberry Podcasting hosting for free with the promo code Jessup Wealth. That's all lower cases, no spaces, Jessup Wealth. Use the hosting estimator on their site to determine the best plan for you. And don't forget, that's Jessup Wealth for your first month free. Anything, Taylor, you want to end with? Um, no, just excited to see what the markets do this week. I know we had a great day on Friday. Good reversal so. day. I'll be interested to see is the uh, geopolitical headlines, does that put a pause into what I thought was going to be kind of this, you know, potential rally going into earnings. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I can't just, um, I can't say enough about how just the humanitarian side of this is just catastrophic on all levels, on all sides, and it's just so sad to see. Mm -hmm. um, but um, obviously we are a financial-related uh, podcast, so we're gonna mm -hmm. focus on kind of the finance side of things, but um, it'd be interesting to see how the market reacts to this uh, and how it reacts to the, um, the earnings coming up here. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's definitely gonna be a, a lively fourth quarter. Yeah, just a lot of factors all kind of running together. <laughs> a lot of cross currents, yeah. right? All right, so we'll sign off. Thank you for listening to episode Deuce, Deuce, Deuce of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Myself, Taylor, Jenna, and Mark, we hope all of you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.